theyeshiva.net. We are so grateful to Robert Jacobson for taking the time to come speak with us. Robert Jacobson, as everyone knows, is a world-renowned speaker and educator. To me, one of his biggest strengths is his empathy with people's real-life challenges and the way he addresses this in his talk, combining Tarun Hasidus for a present day. I thank you for the invitation here this morning to speak to this group. I just, before I begin, I have to make a, a few qualifications. And that is, you know, in, in, in lives of the ones you described, there, if in any life of any woman or mother there's a lot of multitasking in a good day, right, and in the best marriage and with a lot of help, certainly in a life that is fraught with, you know, various challenges and obstacles, multitasking becomes uh, quite intense between sometimes a livelihood earning, not sometimes, earning a livelihood and paying bills and mentoring children and educating children and getting them off to school and being there for them at night and then sometimes dealing with courts and lawyers and so on and so forth. It can get very intense. So I think, you know, there's, it's important to create, create distinctions in our conversation. I'm not going to address today, simply because it's not my uh, expertise, halachic issues. You mentioned in your email to me some halachic questions and issues. I, mean, I could talk about it, but I don't think I should because it's not my expertise. And what I would advise everyone in those like issues, like sh people ask about shaitals and the, you know, these types of halachic, pure halachic questions. In life, on a good day, and in everybody's life, it's good to have a rabbi or somebody similar who you trust, who you respect, it doesn't have to be in the city, it could be in a different continent, you know, and somebody that you can ask your halachic questions, somebody who understands you, who's sensitive to you, and if somebody doesn't understand you, so then you choose somebody else. You have to find a rav, you know, somebody who can challenge you, but somebody who will be there for you, who will appreciate those sensitivities. What I want to try to address is some of the general perspectives about living life under, these, under many of these circumstances, and perhaps, you know, helping us navigate through it. Point number one. Number one, I am a man. I'm not a woman, as is quite obvious, probably. And uh, as a result of that, there are things about your life that I do not understand. As much as I will listen, and I have heard plenty in my life, but ultimately, to really understand somebody is to be in their shoes. If you're not in somebody's shoes, you can understand partially, you can empathize, you could be sensitive, which is good, but you could never claim to fully understand. So I have to say that all my comments that will be said are coming from a mouth and a heart that is, tries to be empathetic but doesn't fully understand. And I think it's important for you to recognize that, that when people are having conversations with you, even if they have the best intentions, they may simply not understand. So they may be friends, they may be good, they may be kind, they may be very kind, but they sometimes just don't understand. And the reason I say that is because sometimes I hear from, from, uh, from mothers or, or, or people in your or similar circumstances how frustrated they get because they're expecting from themselves certain emotions or behavior based on what their friend or their rabbi or the rabbitson told them, but that person doesn't really understand. 
so that person means well and we should learn from them and if they're saying something constructive it's 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 good to we all want to grow but uh sometimes you have to know when to say this person just doesn't get it and i'm i'm and i'm not gonna feel guilty you have to be able to nurture that in yourself which brings me to a much larger topic and that is in your life it is almost forbidden to be hard on yourself because you have enough hardships in other words if somebody is completely uninhibited an 18 year old couch potato who has no worry or burden in the world I would say you have to be a little hard on yourself in other situations you actually have to be very nurturing to yourself you have to be able to tell yourself I am doing the best I can today and that's what counts and when somebody starts telling you you should do this you should do this you should have said that you should have said that and everyone will give you 1.1 billion advice you may be uh, depends on your nature you may be uh, generous to them or kind to them you don't have to tell them you know you're stupid but uh, <laughs> but I didn't mean it that way I mean you don't have to tell them you know you're clueless okay let's do it that way but but create boundaries emotionally in other words say no I, I know I know what's happening and I'm not gonna abuse myself a second time in life because what often happens is we abuse ourselves a second time. I was talking to a comedian the other day, and I asked him, what do you do when you fail? You just, you get up, and you just do a horrible job. You know, and comedy is not like speaking. In speaking, okay, you could be a little boring. Okay, so people fall asleep. Fine, so you cut the speech in half, big deal. But in comedy, if they're not laughing, it's like, it's bad. What do you do? And he told me something very wise. He said, Robert Jacobson, I go off stage and I'm done. He says, just because I failed on stage doesn't mean I should fail off stage too. You understand? So it's very important. I may have, I may have made mistakes or mistakes have been done to me, whatever it is. I'm not going to allow that to continue. And now I'm going to be abusing myself. I should be this. I should be that. I should be that. I should have been that. I should have listened. If I made a real mistake, learn from it. We have to learn from mistakes always. But to sit and wallow in thoughts of guilt, especially when people are giving advice and they're not sensitive to the situation, you have to be able to create those boundaries. And it's an indistinction because you don't want to cut yourself off and not get advice. Sometimes people say smart things. Sometimes people could be, some people are intelligent and some people do know a little bit what's going on, right? So we're not talking about cutting yourself on creating a heart of stone about that. I'm talking about, however, creating a very healthy partition between listening and listening respectfully, but then knowing what resonates and what is absolutely wrong. And I'm not, and I'm not going to denigrate or diminish myself, which brings us to another point, which is really probably the key issue in all of this life is mysterious if you haven't figured it out by now uh, and what I mean by life is mysterious there are some things in life that make sense but the ju different journeys in life are really not very logical the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya we say in the morning Ashreinu Matayv Chalkeinu and he brilliantly explains that these are three aspects in life. 
Chalkenu is our lot, our chalik. Each one has their chalik in the world based on their personality, their characteristics. You have your talents, your resources, your challenges. This is who you are, what you're good at, what you're not good at, right? One person is a great dancer, and one person is a brilliant writer, and one person is a great communicator, and one person is a great administrator, one is a great teacher, one person is a great mentor, one is a great cook, and one, whatever it is, everyone has their idiosyncrasies, their blessings, their resources. My Yafa Yerushaseinu is our genes, what we get from our genes. I'm not only me. I'm my father, and I'm my mother, and I'm my grandfather, and I'm my grandmother, and I'm my great-grandfather. We're not born in a cocoon. We're not born. We're not hatched in the wilderness. We all carry carry luggage, and, and I'm talking here also positive. We, we, I, I have my father, and I have my mother, and I'm part of that. We're all part of that. And then there is manoyim goyroleinu, this goyro. What's a goyro? A goyro is, you know... We'll say, we'll make a goyro between two people. Who's going to win, right? There's no logical reason that this person lost and this person won. Because if there was a logical reason, you would have given it to them. They're really equal. But somehow the goyro decides that you belong here and you belong there. And he says that's another aspect of life. That people are taken to places. And there's no logical reason why this person is here, this person is here. Why does this person have you know, 14 or 16 kids and their marriage at least looks beautiful and this person has a marriage that ends and ends in a very difficult way and this person goes through these charters and this person... What, I don't have to tell you about every person's journey. Some, sometimes it's in a marriage and sometimes it's with children and sometimes it's with parents and sometimes it's mental and sometimes it's with yourself and sometimes it's with, it's with everything. And, and this is goiro. So he says, when it comes to chalkeinu, you could say ashreinu. Every person has great, great resources. Every person has their own gifts. When it comes to your genes, my yafa, we received a lot of things from our parents that were very good. The ability in life to be able to say, manoyim goyroleinu. The word noyim is a very interesting word. Noyim means pleasant. Not beautiful and not good. Pleasant, sweet. What does that mean? It means to be able to look at my goyrol and stop blaming myself and stop denigrating myself and rather realize that somehow inexplicably my soul's mission took me through this journey and I have now a choice I can become a victim in the journey or I could say God is with me right here right now giving me all the power and resources I need to bring light to this situation. And that doesn't make it always easy, but it makes it noyim goyroleinu, pleasant. This is an insight of the Alter Rebbe. Now an insight of the Rebbe. Who experienced this more than anybody? Esther, a Jewish girl, Beis Yaakov graduate, or Beis Rivka, <laughs> was looking forward to a bright Jewish future and ends up in the bedroom of Achashverosh, a drunk Persian Ahmadinejad. A little better, a little worse, whatever. And for years. And then Mordechai says, go plead with him for your people. And she says, you don't know my husband, he's a crazy lunatic. You have to know him. I go out with a head shorter. Achaz das And there's no court system in Persia. There's no democracy. And Mordechai says... The Jewish people will be saved regardless, but you will forfeit your opportunity. And then he says, 
Who knows if this is not the reason you became a queen in the first place? And the question is, Mordechai should have spoken with certainty. He should have said, it's obvious that you became a queen. Mi idea is like, who knows? Maybe yeah, maybe not. So Esther says, you know what? If you don't know, I also don't know. So the Rebbe once explained on Purim, unbelievable insight. Esther said, okay, I got it. But why me? Why a nice Jewish 13th Avenue, Borough Park, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Jerusalem, Crown Heights girl, Lakewood, whatever. Why me? Why by Achashverosh? And Mordechai's answer is towards me idea. It's beyond das. The journeys of souls cannot always be rationally explained. There's too many things that are mysterious. It's me idea. It's beyond das. It's something that comes beyond logic. And this triggered in Esther the conviction to go beyond her own das and really go into a place of mysterious nefesh and save the Jewish people. And what this means in our life is some things make sense. Some things you look back and you're like, why me? How? But now I have a choice. One choice is I surrender to despair or I wallow in my victimhood and I become an internal kvetch. I don't mean an external kvetch. That's sometimes necessary to have somebody. I'm doing internally. You know, the way I look at myself is my life is a ruined life. And I start comparing myself. You go Friday night to a family and you're like, why couldn't I have that? You know, why can't my kids? Oh, it's been a few years. <laughs> the last time I addressed this group was in her house on Montgomery Street, right? Her son's birthday. Ellie's birthday, right? I don't have such a bad memory. Okay, you remember? Yeah. You were there. I see she came back. It took her a few years, but she came back. So, you know, and the, the comparing game could be very demoralizing. Because it's Shabbos, it's Yom Tif, you come home Friday night, and that's what you're thinking about. And here it's important to acknowledge the pain, to be able to ask the question, but then to be able to say this. I am not a victim. My soul's journey is going through this road. And Hashem is here with me right now, every moment, giving me the power to maximize my situation and bring light into this place. Why couldn't I be given another path in the wilderness of history? I don't know. Just like I don't know why Esther ended up in Achashverosh's bedroom and not on Carroll Street. You know, why she ended up in Tehran, I, I beats me. I really don't know. But these are questions that go on and on. This is all the girdle of life. And here, we can draw every day tremendous inspiration from one character, who if there was somebody who had to deal with a difficult, uh, uh, what's it called, deck of cards, it was him and his name is Yosef, was Yosef. Yosef was orphaned hated by his family, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. By all means, his life was over, especially from a place of liberty. He's now a slave. He's successful as a slave, and he's accused of, 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 of abduction, of rape, of violation. He's thrown into a pit in, in Egypt, 
without a lawyer and without hope of coming out. And naturally we expect him to become a bitter person at best. At worst to become a, a heartless criminal. But at best to become a bitter, cynical human being who trusts nobody. You know, when your own brothers stab you this way, it's like, who's there to trust? Your own family couldn't be there for you, right? And you finally make it in, in Petifra's house and, and the woman who you were so loyal to, her and her husband, and the only reason you didn't do what she wanted is not to betray her marriage. And you get, you get stabbed for that. And then you're in prison and you're helping this butler and you get stabbed for that. He won't even do what you asked him to do. You just become a very, you know, how many times can you be backstabbed and frontstabbed? At some point you say, A2 Brute, <laughs> then Caesar falls and you fall. That's from Ali Toro, third grade. <laughs> and uh, actually for my mother. So uh, <laughs> at some point Caesar falls, you know, you may be a Caesar, but you fall, it's just too many wounds. Even Caesar falls. And we find something incredible. Yosef meets his brothers. And they're horrified. Of course, he might take revenge. And he turns to them and he says, don't be depressed. Really? You shouldn't be depressed? You sold me into slavery. You abused me. You denigrated me. You shouldn't be depressed. Maybe they should be telling him he should not be depressed. The answer is he wasn't depressed. <laughs> he was actually a happy person. You see throughout the Tanakh, Yosef has tremendous chayin. He always has charm. He always has grace. He always has charisma. He always makes the best of a situation. He's always rising to the top. He's a slave. He comes to the top. He's in prison. He's on the top. And then he really rises to the top. And he forgives his brother. And you wonder, how does he do this? What's the mechanism? He was hurt by them. And he was hurt by God. And he was hurt by Egypt. He was hurt by everybody he came in contact with. There was nobody who dealt him a fair place. And yet, he's full of life and energy and, and giving. And there's one key line in the passage in the Pasuk in Vayigash. Yosef says, you did not sell me. You did not sell me. We expect the conclusion of the passage to be, you did not sell me. God sold me. He doesn't say that. He says, you did not sell me. God sent me to create life in Egypt. The distinction that Yosef made psychologically is between being sold and being sent. You did not sell me. God sent me. In Hebrew, there's two words, mechira and shlichut. Mechira is sale, shlichut is a mission. What's the difference between selling something and sending something, sending somebody? When I sell something, say you sell your house, you sell your car, you sell your computer, you sell your iPhone, whatever you sell. You sell your mink coat, you sell your diamond ring, right? Or your husband sells it, or ex-husband sells it, whatever it is. Huh? Okay, or no diamond ring, fine. Or your mother's jewelry, whatever it is that he sold. It's gone, number one. Number two, you don't ask the jewelry, do you want to be sold? You don't ask your car, do you want to be sold? You don't ask your house, what do you like? The house is a dead, passive object that you just do things to it, and it suffers the consequences, right? When you send somebody... You don't just send them, you're sending them on a mission. So you first have to evaluate if they're suitable, right? You summon them, you say, this is the mission I need because I know your strength, and then you send them. In life, I could look at my circumstances in two ways. I could say to myself, I was sold. 
I could say I was sent. Yosef could have looked at his life and say, I was sold. I was taken by my brothers, sold into slavery, taken by Potiphar, thrown into prison, taken by a butler, ignored. That's my life. I have been sold like a ping pong ball. Like a ball, like a tennis ball. I've been thrown here, thrown there, thrown there, thrown there, and here is my life. Let me make the best out of it. That would have never cultivated in him the personality it did. Yosef looked at his life completely different. I was never sold. I was sent. Meaning, when God examined my soul before it came down to this world, it evaluated exactly what my soul is, its strengths, its mission, its opportunity, and it was sent through different journeys in this world. Given all the strengths to bring light to the place it is, to the darkness it is. So wherever Yosef was, he looked at himself and he said, I am a shliach to this place. God sent me, or although people made choices in the process, and some of them made bad choices, I was sent here because I have the, all the inner strength. He's here with me, and he gave me all the strength to light up this darkness that I am in and bring light into this place. Wherever he was, this was his attitude. And therefore, he was an extremely cleansed, wholesome person. He did not live with despair, with melancholy, and with depression. There's a Jew in Israel. His name is the Tolner Rebbe. He's a great man. He once spoke at an event for Gimel Tamas. He's, he's a Rebbe, the Tolner Rebbe. And he gets up and he tells the crowd, what's the difference between Breslev and Chabad? And he says... Rabbi Nachman of Breslov wanted that Breslov and Hasidim should have long payas because he told them when you'll end up in hell I should be able to come and schlep you out with something so if you have payas I can schlep you out so he says Rabbi Nachman comes up to heaven and he hears from the global barbecue up there a Breslov, a guy screaming Tate! Abba! comes running in he sees a Breslov and Hasid on the hellish barbecue no pun intended Hospeus, you have payas, takes his payas, schleps him out. Beautiful. Tony Rebbe says the Lubavitcher Rebbe also comes up. He hears a Chabatsky screaming, Rebbe, Rebbe, walks in, he sees the Lubavitcher in hell, comes over, Rebbe, take me out of this. He says, Lubavitcher Rebbe takes out a dollar, gives it to him, and says, Lots of Hatzloche in your Schliches right here. <laughs> and the point he was trying to make, of course, anecdotally, was that. In the view of Torah, in the view of Hasidus, in the view of the Baal there's no such a thing a Jew was sold. I wasn't sold. I was sent. Say, what do you mean I wasn't sold? My brother did this and this. My mother did this and this. My rabbi did this and this. My ex did this and this. My children did this and this. This one did this. The community did this. What do you mean I wasn't sold? Just like you, of course I'm a victim. Well, practically, I may have been through all these processes and I have to acknowledge that. And I have to empathize with that, and others have to empathize with that. But internally, I have to tell myself, I have been sent. What does it mean I have been sent? I am never a victim of anybody or anything. You're never, you wake up in the morning, the first thought you have to tell yourself is, when you say, you have to say, today is a day. I am not a victim. And I am not a loser, and I am not a Rahmanas case. I have difficulties, yes. 
I have circumstances that can be difficult, some days more difficult than others. I have a hundred things to do today and I don't know how I'm going to do it. There are circumstances that are objectively difficult. But my soul is Tahirihi. My soul today is a part of your God's light. You're here with me right now throughout the day. And I have every single power to bring light to the situation of my life today. To me, to my children, to my house, to my corner in the world. I have power to bring light. I'm not sold. I'm a shliach. A shliach means I was chosen because I have the power to fulfill a mission in the place where I was sent, which may sometimes be court, which may sometimes be difficult conversations with teenage kids, or whatever else I'm facing. Livelihood, banks, therapists, counselors, or just my own, my own personal life. Which brings us to another critical point, and this has to do with validation and approval by others. One of the most paralyzing things in the world is when you always need validation from other people. In your lives, you can't afford that. Your validation has to come from yourself and from God, not from anybody else. Meaning, you see, what often happens in life is we exasperate our circumstances because we give it negative commentary, because we give ourselves negative commentary. Let me give you a simple example from my world and you'll be able to apply it to your world. I'm going to finish this class soon. Hopefully I'm going to end at some point. With rabbis, you always have to make that prayer. Okay. Now imagine, imagine I finish and I'm thinking to myself, did I do well? Did I not do well? Did they like it? Did they love it? Was it great? Was it horrible? So I'm waiting for feedback, right? So one of you may come over and say, that was awesome. So I tell myself, okay, I'm great. Another one will say, okay, I've heard you better. <laughs> um, okay, I'm horrible. Another one is like, I really slept through the whole thing from beginning to end, and I was really daydreaming. I mean, it was not engaged. You said everything we know already. I'm like, I'm like really horrible. Another one says, oh, that was, that was incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm good. The other one says, eh, I don't agree with anything you said. So now I leave, and for four hours, I'm rehashing. Was I good? Was I bad? I'm good. I'm horrible. I'm never doing this again. Why did I agree? For nine hours, that's it. There's nothing else. There's nothing else, because this person slept through it. You understand what happens? What happens is we often associate performance with value. If my value is based on my performance, now you give me criticism. I have no value. So for the next two days, I'm on a depression that I'm a horrible person. So when you tell me you slept through the whole thing, I don't hear that you slept through the whole thing. I hear that I'm horrible. I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm not good. But imagine my identity was fine. And I don't need anybody to approve and give validation to my identity. My soul is part of God. God doesn't need validation. I don't need validation. Now you come over to me and you say, I slept through the whole lecture. You know what I hear? You slept through the whole lecture. You know what I think? Good for you. I wish I could have slept through the whole lecture. I'm also exhausted. I'm happy for you. You got to sleep. I had to talk. That's it. That's what I heard. 
So you slept through the whole lecture. Good for you. And you know what? If you give me genuine criticism about something I said that was wrong, I'll learn my lesson for next time not to make the same mistake. So I can actually show up to life. I could listen to what you said. You know? Uh, a husband comes to me the other day. Every time his wife says, please take out the garbage, he gets upset. You may remember this from the good old days. He gets upset. He, he gets upset. He doesn't know why. I said, it's very simple. He grew up in a home where he was a pawn. He was a pawn. He was controlled constantly, right? He never graduated that. So when his wife asks him to do something, he's not hearing take out the garbage. What he's hearing is, you are the garbage. He's not hearing take out the garbage. He's not hearing what she's saying. He's hearing the story that he's been telling himself his whole life and everything she says triggers that story. So he's getting angry at her. She doesn't even know why he's getting angry at her. He's detaching from her, so she's detaching from him. Really, it's nothing about what she said. All she said was, please take out the garbage. Or she texts him, you know, you forgot to buy wine. Or you made a mistake. And who he's hearing is not you made a mistake, but you are a mistake. I was at a bar mitzvah, and a young man comes over to me. And he says he wants to dance with me. The father of the bar mitzvah, and we're dancing. In the middle of the dancing, he's crying. I thought he's crying from joy. He looks at me, he says, am I worth anything? Do I amount to anything? Did something come out of me? His son's bar mitzvah. I said, why are you asking? He says, when I was a kid in yeshiva, we were classmates. Some of this, one of the staff members went over to him and said, you're wasting your time here. Nothing will ever come of you. So he says, tell me tonight if anything came of me. So I say, this happened 30 years ago, 35 years ago, with tears streaming down his face on the dance floor. He says, but not a day goes by that I don't think about what the man said, and I want you to tell me tonight if he was right or wrong. Okay. Now, at least he was aware of it. How many people are unaware of it? And this CD plays in their desk. I'm not good enough. I'm a loser, I can't trust anybody, I'm alone in the world. And when we, go, we grow older, we enter into relationships, we're still repeating that story. And everything our spouse, our friend, our parent, our sibling, our child says triggers that, right? So a father tells his son, do homework now, or you tell your son, do homework now. And 10 minutes later, he doesn't do it. And then 10 minutes later, he still doesn't do it. And after the sixth time, his father blows the fuse. You do homework right now. You're going to listen to me in this house. I'm going to be respected. The reason he blew his fuse was not because the boy didn't do homework. It's because the story of this father all his life has been, I'm worthless. I'm disrespected. Now I got older. My mother never respected me. My father never respected me. My siblings never respected me. My wife doesn't respect me. And now my eight-year-old twerp doesn't respect me. Now I'm a real loser. So you understand? So when he's screaming at his boy who's eight years old, it's really a four-year-old screaming at an eight-year-old. So it's really pathetic. He can't even be a father because he's so small in his own mind but if he would understand that his wholesomeness is not dependent on other people so now his child didn't do homework that's it it's about my child didn't do homework it's not about I'm a loser I'm horrible I'm meaningless we have to become aware of these things because when we're not we're not showing up to life we're not responding to the reality we're responding to our perception of the reality based on our story 
in your situation, however, this becomes a hundred times. It, it, this is next shouldn't say. This is critical for every person's life, especially for a life in which you have to do a lot of things on your own, because you must differentiate between what your children are telling you and who you are. Because when you're raising children in these situations, they will make painful comments. I don't have to tell this to you. They will make painful comments. They will blame you for things that you ought not to be blamed for. Children don't always have the maturity to be able to distinguish. We all know that we never want to put our children into the vortex of conflict. Fathers or mothers who do that are making a mistake because it's not fair for a child to be put on one team because for you it may be an ex, for he it may be ex, for them it's their tati, it's their mommy. So even if the guy is whatever he is, we're not going to talk about him right now, right? It's still the child's father. So as much as possible, we always want to protect them from that. Because of protecting them from that, we often get haunted because he may not always behave like we're behaving. Or sometimes it's the other way. Listen, to be fair, you know. But I'm not getting into the details of how, but that's the point. And one way is, you know, fighting fire with fire. It's like he's saying things about me, you know. Let me, let me expose the truth. Is that wise? I'm not sure it's always wise. Sometimes you have to bite a bullet because you could win a battle and lose a war. You know, sometimes you lose a battle and you win a war, and sometimes you win a battle and you lose a war. So these are things, I think, more individualized cases. One has to be very sensitive to the realities. But the point is, when my child says something to me, if your validation is coming from your children or from your community or from an ex-spouse, then it's so easy to disintegrate. And therefore, when you wake up in the morning and you say, You have to meditate and say, This soul needs approval from nobody. Not from the judge. And not even from my children. Of course, I want a great relationship with my children. Of course, every mother wants their children to love them. But if my well-being becomes dependent on a comment, my son who's going through his stages makes, or my daughter who's in the middle of her, whatever, I don't have to finish the sentence, makes, you understand? Then, one moment, you complimented me, I'm on top of the world. You criticize me, I'm on bottom of the world. You can't live that way. And then you can't even be a mother because I'm still a child. I'm a victim. I can't be on the same playing field like somebody who's blaming themselves and now I'm blaming myself. Right, a guy tells me that he comes late for an appointment. He was going out with his wife. He came five minutes late. His wife went crazy. She's like, you are late. You're five minutes late. That's an insult to me. It's disrespectful. Okay, now, between you and me, objectively, five minutes late is not 30 minutes late. It's five minutes late, right? But for her, it wasn't five minutes. Her whole life, she felt that she was a schmata. She made a time. He didn't show up. For her, it wasn't five minutes. For her, it was his statement that she's worth nothing. So when he says, I'm sorry, it doesn't do the trick because it's not about the five minutes. If you came five minutes late to an appointment, right, and you say, oh, I'm sorry for coming five minutes late. Okay, it's the end of it. You were late, but you said, I'm sorry, fine. If you're ten minutes late, you said, I'm sorry. Okay. 
I had a shear yesterday with a person, a wealthy Jew in Manhattan. I yeke, 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 yeke. I came eight minutes late. He was waiting by the door. Okay? I walked in. It was awkward. I looked at him. I said, I'm sorry for being late. There was a lot of traffic, but it was really irrelevant. Because Manhattan is traffic, I could have left an hour earlier. So it's not an excuse. Traffic in New York is like saying whales in China. Of course there's traffic in Manhattan. Leave an hour earlier. You understand? I took the blame. I said, I'm sorry for being late. There was an apology. But he's not my husband. <laughs> he's not my father. He's not, well, we don't have, we don't have, inter, would have, have intertwined issues. Suddenly it's triggering something. You're disrespecting me. So now it's a whole other thing. Now, if he would get upset at her, you know, because she's screaming at him and he's been screamed at, so now he's talking here, she's talking here, there's absolutely no communication. They're both four-year-old children hollering at each other. In life, you want to be able to show up to your children. You want to be able to show up to yourself. You want to be able to show up wherever you show up. In order to be able to show up, you have to be able to be solid. In order to be solid, you have to come from a place of absolute wholesomeness. Wholesomeness means this. God created me. That me is beautiful. That soul is chelik eleka mimal, as it says in Tanya. It's sacred, it's holy, it's flawless, it's impeccable. Do I make mistakes? Of course. Can I fix the mistakes? Yes. Am I a mistake? Chas v'shalom. Am I a failure? Chas v'shalom. That's not only an insult to you, it's an insult to Hashem too. Do I make mistakes? Of course, I'm human, so I learn from them. Am I going to become obsessed with them? No. I can't become obsessed with them. I will learn and I'll try to do better in the future. Humans make mistakes. The whole institution of tshuva is about we make mistakes, we learn from them. And when you learn from a mistake, it's not a mistake anymore, it's education. There was, a, there was a person who uh, worked for IBM. You know, he was a manager in IBM. He made a terrible, terrible business error. He cost the company $10 million in losses. The next morning, he gives in his resignation papers to the CEO. He says, I'm so sorry. I, there's nothing I can do. I apologize. I, I, I depart. No severance pay. You know, I owe you money. Like, it's just, I, I failed. I'm sorry. The CEO looks at him and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm resigning. He says, why would you resign now? He says, because, because I did what I did. He says, you're going to resign now? Are you sugar? I just spent $10 million on your education. And you're going to resign? You're not resigning. This was a brilliant move of the, man, of the CEO because this person became one of his top people and his sense of loyalty was what you couldn't surpass. In other words, of course you made a terrible mistake, and that will be your great education. But if every time I make a mistake, what it means is I'm a shmata, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, right? Now you're having a conversation with your 16-year-old girl who starts giving you an attitude, right? And you're already thinking I'm a nobody, right? And she says, Ma, why can't you be like Mrs. Soda? Why, 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 why? What you're hearing is not her questions. What you're hearing is I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody. My daughter thinks so. How did I get into this? I hate my life. Uh, why am I living in Crown Heights and this yenta across the street is driving me mad and this stupid sister-in-law really doesn't get it and I'm not going to this bar mitzvah and don't they know what I'm going through? And God, I really, I'm having issues with you. And now you go to bed right now. 
It's not about him going to bed. It's about I feel like I'm nothing. So of course, you, I don't want to see you anymore. Lock yourself up in the room. I'm not showing up from a place of, 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 of inner koyach. Why? Because I'm alienated at that moment from my core that is Hashem. I'm, I'm looking down at myself. The Pasuk says, In God's space, there's confidence and joy. If you're, how do you know you're in a good space? When you're in a place of confidence and joy. Not arrogance and not necessarily fun. Life is not always fun. But I'm in a place of confidence and joy. Confidence and joy doesn't mean everything is perfect the way I would like it to be. Sometimes I'm stuck in traffic for three hours. My car was towed. You have to go to court. You're dealing with headaches upon headaches. There's a leak in the living room. The plumber didn't show up. The cleaning lady didn't come for three days. And you just had nine checks with overdrafts. Right? And your son's school is like, if you don't send the check by next Monday, we're going to have to send them home. Right? And right then they ruined your shaitl too. The shaitl ruined your shaitl. You know, just to help things. Just to help things. And of course, it's also two hours Shabbos and you don't have food yet. Right? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not necessarily, fun. I'm not going to say that's called fun and like, yeah, this is wonderful. I mean, but, but I can react from a place of confidence. And from a place of joy, a place of joy doesn't mean it's fun. It means that I know I have the resources to fulfill my shlichus here and now to bring light into this location. That's what Yosef had. He was in a prison cell, for heaven's sake. But he said, I'm not sold, I'm sent. Which means I'll do the best I can. But I'm not going to get intimidated now. And just because somebody is giving me an attitude, I'm I'm fine. And the reason I'm fine is not because I'm arrogant. I'm not arrogant. Ego stands for easing God out. It's because I'm actually not egotistical. Because I recognize I have a shlichus. I'm part of Hashem's light. He sent me to this world. He put me on this journey. Even though I made mistakes and there's a part of my soul that's not damageable. Even if you did every mistake in the book, the the core of you is absolutely wholesome. That's one of the the key foundations of Yiddishkeit and especially of Hasidus. And the Baal Shem Tov teaches that God loves every Jew more than parents love an only child that was born when they were elderly. He loves every Jew more than that and that the love is unconditional. So if he loves you unconditionally, you have to be able to love that self unconditional. This is not about loving your nefesh abahamas, loving your mistakes, loving your, your addictions, loving your, your, your bad habits. This is about loving your chelik elikam imal. And, and respecting it and cherishing it and not letting anybody destroy it. So now, actually, I come from that place. Now, there's a certain serenity in you. Now, when my daughter is asking me questions, even if she's giving me an attitude, I can respond from a different place. I'm not, I'm not judging myself now. I can actually be here for you. You know, if you come down and start giving me an attitude, I can make a mature decision. Are you ready to listen? I'll have a conversation with you. I may say, you know, now is not a good time to talk. Why don't we relax? And, and I'm also not going to be judging you. I won't be judging my children. I don't have to put you down unless I'm threatened. We put down people when we feel that we have to lift ourselves up. But if I'm fine, I don't have to judge you. If you're coming with an attitude, okay, I have hard days. You're having a hard day. Fine. Sweetie, take a bath. Take a bubble bath. Put in some salt. Okay, go buy yourself some sushi. Dragon rolls. 
You know what I mean? <coughs> Go shopping a little bit. Do some window <coughs> shopping. Get yourself in a better mood. And, and we'll talk tomorrow. You understand? Or, or maybe this is a good time for a conversation. But the point is, I wanna resp- you want to respond in life from a place of, of wholesomeness. From a place of oiz v'chedva. But to do that, you have to have personal avoida. Nobody can do this for you. Your therapist can't do it. Although it's good to have a therapist. Your rabbi can do it. Your rebbitzin can do it. Your best friend can do it. Your mother can do it. Your sister can do it. Your sister may be a wonderful, wonderful person. And you should talk to her and get koyak chizuk from her. But these things, it's between you and yourself. You and God. When I wake up in the morning and I say, I have to look in the mirror and say, That's me. <laughs> That's me, me. All this me with all this stuff that... I have been saying, or others have been saying, this soul is pure, holy, impeccable, flawless, perfect, divine, good. Ata varasa, ata yitzarta, ata nafachtabi, va'ata mesham rabikirbi. And with this, I'm going to go live my life today, from that p- space, from that place. And then I don't have to be judgmental. I don't have to be arrogant. I could be vulnerable. I can be normal. I can express myself. I don't have to be afraid of saying I'm sorry, of acknowledging a mistake. Because when, you're, when your value comes from within, you could say, I'm sorry, you could say, I made a mistake. When my value comes from a fake ego, then I could never admit a mistake, as you know from some of your relationships. Some people can just cannot, there's no such a thing, I made a mistake. A guy once told his wife, I never made a mistake in my life. The last time I made a mistake was in 1962 because I thought I made a mistake. We thought you were going to say the last time. I didn't want to say that. So, this is a message we have to tell ourselves and then you can show up to life with your full being because you're not hiding in a hiding place and dodging every comment that somebody makes you know how to make the differentiation between what they said and yourself and their words are not becoming the commentary on your personality their words are just words you fell asleep during my speech okay, God bless you know what I mean? it's not I'm bad, I'm horrible, I'm a loser, I'm never doing this again. She's a sick lady. I don't have to go there. She's not a sick lady, she just went to sleep. But if you're telling me I'm nothing, of course you're a sick lady. You have to become a sick lady. Because if not, I'll be nothing. It's suicide. So if my child or my ex or my this or my this is making a comment, right? I I find myself analyzing how bad they are. I have to do that because I'm suffering so terribly. And uh, this doesn't mean to be naive. This doesn't mean to be naive. And this does not mean to, to be meek or weak. On the contrary, it just means that my strength is very deep. It comes from my, it comes from my, uh, my divine, divine space. I want to make one more very important comment and then open the floor to questions. I mentioned in the beginning most people don't know what you go through. It's important to acknowledge that. Which is why people will tell you stupid things. It's part of life. People say stupid things. Just like Loyaleinu, if you're sitting at a shiva call and some people say stupid things because they don't know, they never sat shiva, right? I was at a shiva where 
a man went through a heart transplant and his wife's his wife pushed him because he didn't have a good heart it failed and he died and a guy tells her in front of me so you must really regret pushing him and I'm like looking at him like well you have a lot of seichel you know <laughs> as though this woman for the next 30 years won't be rehashing it every day in her life eh? you chachem have to come here during shiva and tell that to her not that I think you're saying it made it worse I don't think it you know, probably went right over her but oops, people don't understand and then they'll tell somebody at least he's in a good place you know at least this at least that just be quiet People don't understand. They don't have experience. They don't understand. They're also shy, and they're also don't. They're awkward with themselves, so they can't be emotionally present. So you'll hear all types of comments in your life. Some people get it. Some people don't get it. People that don't get it, you don't have to get upset at them. Again, they're not the experts. They just are who they are. And here is the key: Reb Nachman of Breslov had a lot of opposition. This is a good story for Artisrael. He went into a wedding. A guy attacks him. You're this, you're that, you're that, you're that. He's calm. The man leaves, finishes going to the bathroom, and he leaves. A chassid tells Reb Nachman, I understand you didn't answer back, but I saw you were peaceful. How did you maintain the peace with this attack? Reb Nachman says, if you owe somebody a hundred thousand dollars and you don't pay him back this man who's owed the money meets somebody at a wedding the guy at the wedding looks like you or the other way around somebody else owes him a hundred thousand dollars and that guy looks like you and you walk into the wedding he thinks it's the guy who owes him the money comes over to you Ganev, 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 pay me the money you look at him and say I don't owe you money I'm Chaim, I'm not Yanko. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. You're the wrong guy. He says, would you feel insulted? No. He says, why not? He says, it wasn't me. He didn't know who I am. Rabbi Nachman said, he doesn't know who I am. Why should I feel insulted? He may know my face. He may know my name, but he doesn't know who I am. So why should I feel insulted? He's screaming at me. He thinks he's talking to me. He's not talking to me. He's talking to who he thinks I am. That's a very powerful way to live. It means your identity is from within. You understand? This guy screaming at me doesn't know who I am. He doesn't care to know who I am. If he would care to know who I am, he would come talk to me. So fine. So just like if I think you're somebody else and I start screaming at you, you don't get insulted because I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to them. I just think it's you. So you may be talking to me and think it, but you're not talking to me. That's not me. You think you know who I am. That's your issue. It's not my issue. Now, I'm not going to say that we can all be Rab Nachman's oppressors because this is difficult. I come into a wedding and a guy starts saying, Ganav, 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 you know? And I do owe him the money, right? <laughs> I can get. But, but, but there's a lesson to this in relationships and people, and it all comes from the fact of knowing who you are from within and not allowing the abuse to happen a second time. On the other hand, when you find people who do understand, at least understand partially, and who do empathize that's a place where you want to open your hearts it's important to have friends you can trust and it's important to have people in your life it's important to have a rabbi to have somebody to have confidants that you can ask intimate questions halacha questions personal questions but people who have the common sense 
to understand the circumstances. You know, they're not just one track minded and just going to tell you an answer from Google. You could put in your question in Google and Google will give you an answer. Some people are like Google. They even look like Google. <laughs> you know what I mean? <coughs> it's Google. They have a lot of information, but they remain clueless. That's it. They, ha they have a lot of data. They're like computers. A lot of data, but clu completely clueless. You know? Yeah. That, that comes in a large spectrum. I mean, that's that's itself a sensitive topic. But the point is, you know, you're not going to go out with your computer, you know, to have fun with your computer. Computers are good for data, so they they they, they belong on desks, and that's where some people belong. They have to just remain on desks their whole life, and they do very well. They produce data, but if you're looking for a relationship. It's sometimes a different requirement. When you find those things, it's important to embrace and to nurture and also to be able to listen. And, and this brings us to that idea that happiness in life does not come from the fact that my circumstances are always the way I want them to be. Happiness comes from the fact that I know that I'm doing the right thing right now to the best of my ability, working for God. That's what happiness comes from. Will it always work out? I'm not sure. Is it exactly what I wished for and hoped for 40 years ago? No. Is it the, is it the future that I imagined when I was standing under my chuppah? No. No, it's not. Is there an element of grieving? Of course there's an element of grieving. Is there sometimes I close the door to my bedroom and I shed some tears? Of course. Of course, but that doesn't mean I'm not a happy person. Doesn't mean I'm not a miserable person. Yosef cries throughout the story, but he's a happy person. He sees his brother, he cries. He sees Benjamin, he cries. He sees Shimon, he cries. He sees his father, he cries. He remembers this, he cries. He cries and cries and cries because he had a lot of pain. But he was never sold. He was sent. But sometimes you're sent to painful places. But it doesn't mean I'm a victim. I'm sent to painful places. I see certain things. The Friedrich Rebbe's wife, Rebbe Tzina Hamadina, once went into him after Yechidus, right here upstairs in 770. She sees he's weeping. What happened? He says, from the Yiddish folk. Too much. I, it was after Yechidus. So he heard a lot. He says, it's too much pain. So he's crying. He's crying. The Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe Dayat. But he didn't give up and say, okay, it's a crazy world and I, I'm, I'm out of here. There's two elements. There's pain. You know, there was once, it's, a, it's, it's on tape. It's a fascinating thing. The Rebbe's mother passed away in 64. So he davened for the Amr a whole year to say Kaddish. So he always has a routine of how he davened. One, one, one morning, Shacharis, the Rebbe started Shemayna Esra. And he wept through the whole Shemayna Esra, worse than a baby throwing a tantrum for an hour. He was weeping and weeping, just every bracha, a regular, regular day. No, nothing happened, nobody knew. So some said the night before was Yechidus, and probably could be that Rebbe heard some stuff, and he was praying for them. I don't know, I'm not saying that's the answer. My point is, happiness is not a contradiction to tears. Happiness doesn't mean everything is perfect. La, 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 la. Life is just... 
I'm in La La Land and I'm on a Ferris wheel eating flaffle and taking pictures. I may be on a Ferris wheel, but it's stuck. <laughs> you know when the Ferris wheel gets stuck and it's like not moving anywhere and you're all the way on top and it's like, hey, is anybody home? That was the worst shit update I ever went on. Huh? That was my worst shit update. The Ferris wheel. <laughs> okay. And it stopped, huh? And it was on the top too. And and he and he was probably like, Oh, should I push you? Right? <laughs> um so, so the point is, what, what is happening? Happiness is the conviction that I'm in the right place, in the right time. I'm doing what I can. I'm working for God. I'm an extension of His light. I have all the resources I need to bring light into this place of darkness and to illuminate this corner of my life right now under the circumstances, with the circumstances that were given to me. And I come with that wholesomeness. And mistakes I made doesn't mean I am a mistake ever. Ever. The core has to be as solid as granite or as solid as sapphire. And don't confuse it with arrogance. The stronger your core, the more humility. The weaker your core, the more arrogance. The stronger my core, the more vulnerable I can be, the more I can acknowledge mistakes, the more I could listen to people, the more I could listen to criticism. The, the weaker my core, I can never be wrong. Because I don't have a core. I have to be right. And it's this awareness. When I see that there's confidence and joy, I'm in God's space. When there's no confidence and joy, I have to go into that space. And we always have to remember. And I think this metaphor is very telling. There's a blue sky... The blue sky never changes. But sometimes black clouds come over the blue sky. The black clouds are thoughts. The blue sky is your essence. Your essence is always blue, sparkling, beautiful sky. But then there's thoughts, and the thoughts can sometimes be black. My life is bad. My children are hopeless. I'm hopeless. This is never going to end. This guy is just a Russia Marusha. Why did this happen to me? I'm sick. Everybody is sick. I hate this community. The rabbis are corrupt. The best is worse than ever. There's nobody to turn to. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And my mother is making me sick. And my sister is really obsessed. And she's a narcissist. And my, my brother, I'm never talking to him again. He took the side of my ex. And my kids are brats, brats, brats. My whole life I gave to them. I tried to give them a stable family. And now at the age of 18, they spit in my face. They are horrible. I don't even want to talk to them. I hate this world. You know what I mean? Okay. Look at them and say, fine, don't worry. It's, it's clouds. The clouds pass. Those are called thoughts. Don't worship thoughts and don't define yourself by thoughts. But on the other hand, don't go crazy from thoughts. Fine. Who doesn't have these thoughts? These are, this is life. The Tanya makes distinction between your thoughts and your essence. It's a very important distinction. My thoughts are not my essence. Just because I have this thought, I want to kill you, doesn't mean I'm a murderer. I'm not a murderer. I just had a thought, I want to kill you. I had a thought, I'm jealous of you. I had a thought, I wish you fail. Okay. Fine. These are thoughts. We have black clouds that come under the sky all day. And you know what happens with clouds? They pass. They pass. So don't worship them, but don't get frustrated with them. Let them be. They're thoughts. I am the blue sky. 
And the blue sky is not jealous. The blue sky doesn't have to be judgmental. The blue sky is not a victim. The blue sky is not living in anger. The blue sky is beautiful and calm and serene. We don't have it at the moment, but it will come in a few months. It's there. It's there. And that's who you are. And that's called the God space. Sometimes for hours I'm having these clouds. Okay, let them pass. Fine. I'm jealous. I'm angry. I'm hateful. Okay, okay. Fine. I'm human too. Those thoughts are... Don't worship them. They're not holy. On the other hand, they're not a demonstration that you're evil. They're just part of the human condition. Winston Churchill had a depression. Winston Churchill suffered from depression. Okay. We're also thankful to him that we're alive because he fought Hitler. Winston Churchill in his autobiography calls his depression his little black dog. And it was a brilliant idea because what he did was he disassociated the depression from him. And he said, my black dog comes with me everywhere. And sometimes it starts barking. But the brilliance was he differentiated the depression from him. It's a black dog right here. And it starts barking and it barks for an hour. Basically, I'm bad, I'm bad, my life is hopeless, I'm horrible, I'm alone, I can't trust anybody, everybody stabs me, everybody hates me. Fine. It's a black dog. You turn to the black dog and you say, welcome. Bruchim Haboyim. What else is new? Oh, uh, everything is bad and sh- the Shabbos is going to be the worst and Pesach is coming and we don't even know what's going to happen, Pesach. And, and this is just a disaster. I mean, God, like... And, and why is my sister, why, why can my sister have a normal husband, and, and why this, and why that, and why that, and, you know, and, uh, okay. So the black dog is barking and barking and barking and trying to get me down, and you look at the dog and you say, I'm not judging you, I understand you, and you're here, let me give you a little hug, let me give you a little caress, here's some dog food, and now it's time to be quiet. And you let the blue sky come out, and the black dog will come back, fine. But don't confuse the black dog with your essence. Don't confuse the cloud with the sky. Always be, have the ability to make that differentiation. Even if you can't feel the blue sky, it's there. And you don't want to make decisions from a place of the black clouds. You want to let them pass. And you want to get back your uh, stamina, your equilibrium. And this is the space a Jew wants to be in. We have all types of crazy thoughts and emotions. That's, that you're not, we're not going to get rid of that. That's part of the human... It's part of the beauty of being a human being. We're not perfect, and we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be accountable. Not perfect, but accountable. We don't want our children to be perfect. We want them to be accountable. In life, you just want to be accountable. And the important thing is to remember that under all circumstances, the blue sky is as blue as ever. It's as shining as ever. And the black clouds are there to stimulate us, to trigger us, to bring out powerful stuff in us, but never to be worshipped by us so that they should overwhelm us. And avoid uh, Hashem means that when I'm experiencing the bark of the dog, I have the courage to say, welcome, thank you, but no thank you. Thank you for sharing. I understand life is painful. You're getting depressed, but no thank you. I really cannot tear myself away from God at the moment. And if I start believing that I'm nothing, 
I'm detaching from God because God has sent me and if he sent me I can't be nothing you can't send a nothing on a shlichus you have to send a something on a shlichus so I can't now afford to become you and to say that I'm nothing I really can't go there I appreciate where you're coming from I understand you but I am now the blue sky and that's where I'm going to respond from these are I believe some points that might be able to help us navigate our lives with more well-being with more simcha sachayim, with more confidence with more joy and may God bless and guide each and every one of you to find your right path in your journey to be able to discover all the resources you need to be able to bring light into your lives to the best of your abilities and to be able to fulfill all of your heart's desires yeah, feel free to ask any questions, share any comments or objections. The floor is open, and uh, say whatever you would like to say. Yeah. Okay, you're asking, what do you do in a situation when your ex, the father of these children, is using the children and pitting them against their mother? Sometimes he even employs Tyra to pit the children against their mother. Or your child is in an unhealthy situation in his father's house. There is manipulation, dependency relationships, etc. What is a good way of opening a dialogue with your children in order to help them ease their burden and their pain? Excellent question. So I think the first thing is, you know, the question you raised, I think before we can answer, we first have to distinguish if we're getting angry at our kids for taking sides with our father and we're feeling abused as a result because then what happens is we can't really respond to what's best for the child in other words what you may have been feeling was you'll forgive me okay but you i don't mean about you it's, it's just we all have that what you may have been feeling is not so much concern for the destiny of your child if he ends up living with your husband but rather the stab in your own chest of I sacrifice so much for you. Do you know how hard it is to be a single mom? Do you know about the bills every single day that I had to pay for you to get all of your whatever you wanted in the world and I did the best I can and you came out fairly a good kid and now how do you have the chutzpah to come and go to my sworn enemy who's also a meshugana and a narcissist and a behemoth and a hippopotamus and a shark and you're now going to go live with him instead of me because you need your yeshiva that your brother who's also not grateful is telling you to come to now these are all legitimate emotions we are we are we are human and i told you we have these emotions right because these are facts but let's just realize that when i'm having those emotions i can't respond from a place of wholesomeness to the best situation which will be good for my child which is really what you want to do so it's very important to distinguish that because a lot of these conversations are coming from a place of personal hurt that's normal and I'm, I'm not i'm not denigrating that emotion i'm not saying you should never have that emo- you're a human being you're a human being you've had a difficult marriage a difficult divorce the guy has who he is who he is and i'm not i don't have to preach to you about that and uh, so these are normal emotions right but we want to acknowledge that so if, if i'm responding to my child from that place i'm not responding from a place of strength 
Do you understand? I'm, I'm responding to a place of where I want to soothe my, my pain, and therefore my response can't be <coughs> as potent, as powerful, and as forceful. When you ask about how we engage in our children with dialogue about these things here too, often if the dialogue is coming from a place where I am very weak and I have to gain back my confidence and my approval, so then... Again, my dialogue, I may, I may sink into places where I don't want to really go. I may use words that I don't want to use because I'm coming from a place of a victim. But there's a story that the Rebbe Maharash had two sons, the Rebbe Rashab, who was the younger, and the Raza, Zalman Aaron, who was older, but the Rashab was taller. So the Raza took his younger brother, who was taller, and put him in a ditch. So his father calls him and says, why are you putting your brother in a ditch? He says, because he's younger and he's taller by putting him in a ditch. Now there's equilibrium. I'm taller. So his father says, next time when you're frustrated by how short you are, instead of throwing your brother in a ditch, climb onto a mountain and you'll feel taller. So the point is, you know, it's easy to put people in ditches, but I want to climb up on a mountain. And then... To, 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 to play my game from the top of a mountain is much more powerful than to play my game from putting you in a ditch because I'm putting you in a ditch because I'm in a ditch because I feel I don't feel good about myself so you just we want to we, as much as possible we want our conversations and our responses to come from that place and then you'll see that all dialogue is, 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 is coming from a different place because you could be much more objective you could see things from your child's point of view you can understand partially what she's trying to say about, you know, there's a father and they have a father and, and, and they want a relationship with their father and it's good to have a relationship with your father. Of course, in a case where it's not endangering a person's life, I'm not talking about in every situation. And I think, you, you know, you could respond from that place much better. Like, like here, imagine if you wouldn't be involved, okay? Imagine you were her, you were me, you were somebody else and somebody came to you and said, I have a son, he wants to go to Brinoa, his father is making this and this promise, he wants to live with his father. Can, how would you respond? You would probably respond from a much different place, and that's probably would be a much better response if you're going to talk to your son about it. For example, my speculation would be that your son probably was not that serious. He was probably an 18-year-old teenager being an 18-year-old teenager. It's like, Ma, could we go uh, to Israel for the summer? No. Okay, so don't be surprised if I'm going to move in with my friend. Forget about your ex. I'm going to move in with my friend because their parents are ready to take me to Israel. And for three months, I'm going to be living with them. And the mother's like, where does a boy have a chutzpah? She's thinking, a chutzpah, three months? Right? Of course, he's just being an 18-year-old New York spoiled Crown Heights teenager. Uh, that's my speculation. I don't know this, but that's my instinct. That that's as far as it went. So I, you may be building a big piece of Ramses from his way of, of threatening you, because that's what kids do. Um, uh, I remember I once had somebody playing with me, a friend, and he went to his mother and said, "I don't want to. I don't want you to be my mother anymore. I want Mrs. Jacobson uh, <laughs> to be my mother." You know, because we had steak for dinner. And steak and french fries and ketchup and, and, and that house they couldn't have steak for dinner for whatever reason I mean whatever the, but uh, you understand so, so 
sometimes, again, we, we're going inwards and, and killing ourselves up, beating ourselves up and then beating the other person up when we really, really, it could be, it's not very complicated. My, my guess is he has more seichel than that. It was maybe just, a, you know, a little ploy. It was a good trigger point. So don't be surprised. And, and usually that's what, when they begin sentences, don't be surprised, that's usually what it's about. If he would have sat to you and said, Ma, you know, I thought about it, I would be more alarmed. He said, so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised is a, uh, a teenager's ploy. No, it's a fact. Do you understand? You should know that. Don't be surprised if I jump off the roof, right? Sometimes kids tell their parents, don't be surprised if I kill myself. No, they say it today. Kids say it today. And not always do you have to call, you know, a psychiatrist to admit him to a hospital. You know, if you see your kid is not... But it's, it's again, don't be surprised if I run into the street when a truck is coming. They make these types of statements sometimes. I, I don't know that he meant that. How would I know? I'm just hearing it from you. I'm just saying, you, we generally want to respond from a, a more wholesome place. He threw it out. He's not thinking that his mother went through for the last 20 years, X, Y, Z. You understand? He's a boy. He wants to go to a yeshiva. When a boy wants to go to a yeshiva, it's like you have a crush on a girlfriend when you're 18. You remember that? Not a girlfriend, a boyfriend. When you have a crush on a boyfriend when you're 18, is there anything else that exists? There's nothing else that exists. Those of you who had crushes know exactly what I'm talking about. There is nothing else that exists. 24 hours, that is life. These kids don't have girlfriends, okay? They have their yeshivas. They get crushes. I don't mean literally, but I mean that's the concept. You understand? That's his reality. You are somehow taking away that reality from him in his mind. Now, does he know your bank account? Does he know what you're going through? No. He's 18. He has a crush on this yeshiva. His father told him last Shabbos, I'll pay. So he, he may be doing the best that he knows what to do, you understand? Without understanding all the sensitivities. He doesn't know that you're here talking about it an hour today. I assume if he would know, he would have never said what he said. You have a very sensitive boy. You understand what I'm saying? In his mind, I have a crush on this boyfriend. Mommy can't afford this boyfriend. Tati can. Maybe it's not such a bad idea. And I don't even think he meant it. I don't even think he meant it. How do you get to the place of wholesomeness? I think you get to the place of wholesomeness from having a very intimate relationship with God. So uh, the point is, I think we need a very intimate relationship with Hashem, which allows us to have a very intimate relationship with ourselves. I think we have to have a space that's quarantined from the rest of the world. You have to spend time with yourself. You have to spend time with God. You have to spend time with your soul. I think that's what davening is, meditation. Moments when we consolidate our soul, when we, when we realize who we are, and then we can come to the world from another place. It just makes all the difference when your child is speaking to you and you're solid, or your child is speaking to you and you're falling apart. Because when your child is speaking to you and you're solid, you just listen to their words and that's it. It's all about them. When your child is speaking to you and you're falling apart, half of it is about you. He doesn't like me. I'm trying to do everything. And now I can't even be there for him. You know what I mean? If my kid wants to go to Brunois and I could look into his eyes and identify what that need is, what he thinks he's getting from his father, I can navigate it better to his benefit. 
but when I'm not there, it's like, how can you do such a thing to me? So even though that's a legitimate emotion, but it's more likely that my response can't really be as powerful, as effective. That's what I think. You get my points, right? I'm not giving you advice what to do. I'm just giving you the context behind what to do. Yes, your adult children have turned against you and have written letters to the court blasting you. So you're asking what you should do. Should you just lift up your hands, surrender, and say, this is what God wants from me? Or do you put your foot down and tell your children that this is not the way to treat their mother and that there will be consequences if they mistreat you and abuse you in this way? It's a big question. I would I would do something in the middle, okay? I think between you and God, Yosef was not a passive uh, a passive victim. He wasn't saying, "Oh, God wanted this, let me stay a slave." He became the prime minister of Egypt. <laughs> he became the most powerful person in the world. So understand that the choice of saying I was sent by God is not there to create paralysis. It's there to create power. Okay. I think you should speak them from only from a place of deep spiritual power. By you combining the two perspectives, your conversation will be far more effective. You're basically saying either, I'm like, this is what God wants. I'm a shmata. Throw those snowballs on me. Black and blue me with all your snowballs. And I'm like, this is what God wants. Or I tell them, you are brats, you little girls. Don't come back to me for favors. We need to integrate these two perspectives because then each one will be much more powerful. God sent me does not mean I'm a shmata, continue throwing snowballs. The same God says if somebody's trying to kill you, kill them first. Okay? Religion is not about being a passive victim, a shmata, step on me, insult me, denigrate me. Yosef did not do that. But once Yosef was sold and he didn't have the ability to go out, he says, you know what? I'm On the contrary, I'm going to be as powerful as I can be as God Shliach here. So I think that's the first foundation. And when you come from that, then you could speak to your daughters as a powerful mother rather than as a victim of their bad choices. You can really come from the place of a powerful mother. In other words, these letters, imagine that these letters did not undermine your energy, which is very difficult because they would. every And you could speak from that space. Then you'll be like Yosef. And then you could speak to them in a way that might actually be effective. For example, I would not use the words, don't come to me for more favors. Because that's, that's, you're on their playing field now. You got me, I'll get you. You're fighting with me, I'll show you. We're on the same playing, you're not on the same playing field. You're coming from a place of very deep wholesomeness. A place where God sent you. But you're still their mother. And you still have a very deep love to them. So you now want to help them find their souls. Their souls are in exile. That's what you want. You don't want revenge. You don't want, don't come back to me for favors. You want to help them find their souls. You want to help them find their happiness. You want to help them find a life in which they're not going to be writing letters against their mother. Because first of all, it's not good for them. It's not right. For all the reasons that it's not good. You get my point? That's where you want to have conversations with them. Not from their own level. So it's not this or that. It's both. The more you'll be like Yosef, the more you'll be able to speak to them in a powerfully effective way. 
and without them feeling the need to say, okay, okay, we don't need you. What do you think they'll tell you when you say, don't come, we don't need you, we have Tati, we don't need you. We know that you're at the Dolalem. We have Tati. That's what they'll tell you. So you understand? So now we're in the same playing field. So you'll tell to them, okay, I hope you mature and grow up. And when you're ready, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. You want to come from a place of, you're great kids. I know you. I respect you. I cherish you. I want you to be able to believe in your own confidence, in your own judgment, in your own discernment. You're not a victim to anybody. You're not a victim to your dad, just like you're not a victim to your mom. You're God's precious diamonds. The way you write, the way you speak about people, could be with integrity, with authenticity, with honesty, especially about somebody who brought you into the world. You know, that's the message you want to give them. It's not about, I will show you. It's about, look what you can be and what you have become. You know, that's what it's about. If they're open to that, that's the way to go. I'm not sure they're open right now to that. But that's the level of conversation. It's not about I'm going to take revenge. I don't need to take revenge from you. You're Tinoika Shanishbu, she's right. You have been brainwashed and abducted. Why should I take revenge from you? Your father has bribed you. You're not thinking straight. You're really making a conscious, malicious choice against your mother. You're victims. You're babies. You're three-year-old babies who have been abducted. You may be 27, but on a psychological level, you're three years old. You have not matured. So watch that. I'm going to take revenge from my three years old because he hit me. They're three-year-olds. Your three-year-old comes to you and says, Mommy, I hate you. I'm never speaking to you. So now you're going to take revenge. We teach them not to hit. Right. So my three-year-old, unfortunately, is very open. (laughs) My 27-year-old is sometimes a little more brainwashed than my three-year-old. So I just think, you know, think about it from that space, not from a space of, I'll show you, but from a space of enlightenment, from a place of light, light in two meanings, light as in light, and light as in light. (laughs) Sometimes we don't initiate, but when they come to ask a question, it's a good opportunity for an entrance. You know, the best, in, in a good day, forget in this situation, the best tools of education is always never to tell our children anything. To wait till they bring up something and to use it to give us our messages, you know? For me to start telling my children things, okay, here, Tati's preaching again. Or Mommy's preaching again. But if they ask a question like, we are going, or why do you go to this place? This is an opportunity. Because there's a curiosity already. So in these things too, sometimes the best is to wait and they'll ask something you know why do you do this and this and then to show them I can't emphasize this enough you have to see yourselves as shluchim of God every moment you're ambassadors of light of love and of hope you want to show this to your children but to show them you have to be that way if you're on the same playing field like your ex you're already lost you can't go there. You can't afford it. You have to be in a very elevated space. You know what I mean? Elevated doesn't mean naive. Elevated doesn't mean victims. Elevated doesn't mean shmatas. On the contrary. Elevated means prime ministers of Egypt, <laughs> like Yosef. In other words, you're, 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 you're just you're ambassadors of light. Your core is solid. It's one with God. And when my child asks me a question, I want to impart this to him. I want to show that he can reflect us, that she can reflect us.
And ultimately, they'll have to, you know, they're big kids, they'll have to draw their own conclusions. And if, you know, one day they'll sober up and they'll say, this is the message I'm getting from mom. This is the message I'm getting from dad. Now I have to choose. But that's what I can do. I can't battle darkness directly. There's the old Hasidic saying, you can't battle darkness with sticks. You can only battle darkness by igniting light. Now, this is not a cliche that become a passive shmata. It's a very profound idea. What can I do for this person's darkness? Take a stick and battle it? I can't. But what I could do is fill my life up with light, and this darkness is not in control of my house. And when people come into my house and come into that house, they'll say, here there's light, here there's darkness. But that can only be from a genuine place. I can't fake light. You know, it can't be a ploy. It can't be a, a magic trick. You know, this is a great home. It's like if I'm really filled with light, it becomes contagious. If I'm not filled with light, it doesn't become contagious. A woman came to me here by the class at 770, and she says, how do I make my children happy? My children are miserable. So I told her, you can't make your children happy. All you can do is make yourself happy. And if you're really happy, your children will see a happy mother. They'll learn from it. So she says, I'm hopeless. I'm a miserable woman. So she, I tell her, you really think there's hope that you should make your children happy when you look at yourself and you think you're hopeless? The only source of happiness is knowing that you're in the presence of God and that He loves you. So if you think that you're hopeless, it means you're not in the presence of God. It means He doesn't love you. It means your life is purposeless. That's the energy you're giving in your house. You think your children are going to become happy in such a home? If you don't believe in yourself, there's no way you're going to believe in your children. Why are your children better than you? God created them more than you. He created you. He created them. So if you're not happy, no one else around you is going to be happy. There's no such a thing making my children happy. I don't make my kids happy. If you're happy, your children will see what happiness is. And they'll probably learn from it, hopefully. If not, so they'll have another model who's not happy. They'll have to learn happiness from God directly, or from Elio Anavi, or from Mashiach. I don't know from whom. But, uh, you know, that's really, I think, always the message. It's like, I can't do anything for anybody. I can do things for myself, within myself. And if it overflows, so then everyone gains from it. You know, there's two... It says there's two ways of being mashpi, of, of, of giving energy to people. One is I have a cup of water, right? And I pour it into your cup and your cup and your cup. All day I'm just doing this and this and this and this. So my arm starts hurting and I get resentful. And at the end of the day I have nothing left. And you guys have liquid and I'm left depleted and hungry. Another way of being mashpi is I take a bucket of water. I find a wellspring and I just fill my cup. And it overflows and overflows. And it's overflowing so much it goes here and here and here and here and here and here. And at the end of the day, what happens? Everybody's cup is full and this cup is full. My arm is not killing. You understand? And it's really two ways of inspiring people. One is, I'm busy. I'm just being, I'm being, being the selfless martyr. You, 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 you. And I'm a shmata. I'm a nothing. I'm not here. Take, take, take. take. At the end of the day, I have nothing. and Everyone else has something. Right? And now, I, I, now I'm dead and I'm resentful and I hate everything. And I'm like, I'm never going to do this again for you. And then there's no. I'm just filling my cup with light. And there's so much light. It has to go somewhere. So it goes to this child and this child and this child and this child and this child. And I think it's just an approach, you know. It's, it's, it doesn't mean that. If someone, of course, I'm going to have to stretch out my arm and be selfless and get exhausted and... You know, and spend a night with my kid where I don't want to, whatever, in the doctor. Of course, that's all part of life, but the approach in life is that my happiness is contagious from within. 
rather than I'm going to make you happy. I'm going to make you a good life. I'm not going to make you have a good life. It just, there's no... You're asking that your son is not maximizing his potential in school. The system doesn't seem to suit him. So what should you do? How could you show him the balance of respecting the system on one hand and yet encouraging him somehow to move on beyond it and maximize his potentials, right? That's your question. It's extremely important. The most important thing, even before studies, is empowerment. Our children realizing that they can live excellent lives and they can achieve excellence. And the way they do it is through good self-confidence, through appreciating who they are, through loving themselves by a relationship with God, and also through seeing that they can achieve things, they can work hard and achieve things. So we want to guide them in that direction. And whatever that means practically, it has to translate into their actions. Sometimes we scrutinize a child and we say, this child will not be able to sit all day in yeshiva and learn. For him, it's going to mean that he's a failure. And then we have to find, we have to find a, ch- a way, a path for this boy. Because if not, we're putting him through a system that's going to be frustrating and he's going to run away. Yeah, you're asking, how do you empower children that come from challenging backgrounds, dysfunctional families, problematic homes, filled with a lot of uh, pain and misery? How do you empower, how do you give chizuk to these children inspiration? We have to give them time. We have to be very attentive to them. And, and, sh- and show up, be very present. And, and really give them that sense of their invaluable place in the world. And they have to hear how we speak about our lives. The, way, the stories we tell them, what we talk about in the car when we drive them to school or to a friend or to or to a vacation, or to camp, you know, uh, when we go shopping together. It's the casual, light-headed conversations, not the lectures, you know, come over here and let me teach you about life. There they shut down right away. It's, you know, remember, every time you're on the cell, your child hears every conversation, and they have wet sponges, everything goes in forever. It's not like we, you know. We're half deaf and half blind, you know, we don't listen anymore. Even if we're listening, we're just developing our opinions. They listen and absorb everything. You know, I have a kid who will tell me what I said four and a half years ago to him. You know, you promised me a drawbreaker and you didn't do it. And that means you're a liar and I can't rely on you. So every conversation is really, every conversation with anybody, with, with, with your doctor, with your friend, with your sister, with your, with your mom, whoever it is, is really an opportunity to either empower them or disempower them, you know, to teach them how to deal with difficulty, how to deal with struggle, what faith in Hashem is, what optimism is, what happiness is. It's, it's by osmosis. It's, uh, it's just our very presence. And, and, and together with attentiveness, I think those are the strongest messages we give to children. I always say in my lectures, in Sefer Bereshus, how many conversations take place between Sarah and Yitzchak, the first Jewish mother and the first Jewish child? Anybody knows? How many times does Sarah talk to Yitzchak? The answer is zero. How many times, right, does Rivka, the second mother, 
talk to her son Yaakov only once go take your husband your brother's blessings how many times do Rachel and Leah talk to their children zero not once not once and how many times does Avram talk to Yitzchak only once on the way to the Akedah so they had they didn't speak nobody spoke and the answer is they didn't educate their children through speeches and words they educated their children through being Sarah never lectured Yitzchak he saw his mother and he knew what it means to be a Jew he knew what it means to be a Jew he saw her and what it means he saw her is of course he spoke to him but the point is the Torah doesn't record that so I think you know we empower by being empowered and by giving that empowerment and by, by re- real attentiveness you know, showing them their value in our eyes for children is very, very meaningful. And sometimes doing things, you know, uh, beyond beyond the beaten track. And one of my boys told me once in the car that if I would have to choose between him and my computer, I would choose my computer <laughs> over him. So my antennas went up. I came home and I told my wife that he says that I would choose the computer over him and what he meant was from his perspective I'm always on the computer right I'm typing I'm reading I'm this I'm that he says your books and your computer come before me so I realized I can't lecture him and tell him no I have to show him you know what I mean what am I going to lecture to him he's going to believe me I have to show him the value of his presence so I did, I worked on it. I mean, at least I tried to work on it. And then, we, I then, and then he came, he was asking me something, and I saw it was a, a light conversation. I said, so, so, if it was you and the computer, who do you think would come first? So of course, he says, the computer. He says, I just want to tell you now that if somebody would come to me and say that I should give you up for two days, just two days, and throw and if and if and if I don't want to give you what to do, I have to throw away my computer forever. I would throw away my computer. So he's like, "No, that's not true." For two days, come on, you're stupid. For two days, so you won't see me for two days. And he says, "That means that when I go to camp, you're going to have to come with me because it's more than two days." Unless, so I already realized that I understand. He's asking me the pilpul and, and what I meant. So I said, no, if it's two days that you choose to go away, then I won't throw away the computer. But if it's two days, somebody's forcing me not to see you, then the computer is going to throw away. So he says, what about one day? I said, even one day. I said, even one day. And, you know, he didn't see, he ran away. But that was, for me, when he said, you would, t- you would t- take the computer before me, I realized this kid is not going to be an empowered boy because laptops come before him. So if he's being hired for a job one day, right, and he sees a laptop, that laptop is coming before him. There's no way you could be empowered. And the answer to that is only real, real attentiveness, really demonstrating to children their invaluable identity and hearing how we speak about life. Not to them, to everybody, including to them. You know, it's, it's and also what we do during stress, what we do when we're feeling weak. They all see their mothers weak. What does the mother do? If the mother is empowered, they will learn empowerment by, by just by the energy, not by any, by any lecture. And they'll know what to do during their... Um, but it's not an easy task. You know, don't feel guilty about these things because these are lifelong 
these are lifelong lessons and experiences and you know it's not and it's really we also have to let them grow in other words we don't control our kids completely it's like we're not their gods you know we can't be codependent like if your kid is having a bad day it doesn't mean you should be having a bad day then you can't help your child if your kid is having a bad year in school you shouldn't be having a bad year because if you have a bad year now you have two problem cases instead of one problem case it's like somebody becomes sick and the person who's trying to help them also becomes sick if your child is having a hard time it means that you now can't afford to become sick to become demoralized to become angry because you want to be in a position to help them so my child has a bad day and a very now they come home with all these attitudes and all these issues if i'm now going to sink so now we have two people with attitudes and now they're talking to each other you know one attitude with another attitude so let the attitude talk to the attitude and you talk to your child you know my people will call your people mm. so uh, so it's like it's like you know you don't want to become a codependent you know jewish mothers have been known to be to infiltrate you know enemy territory very heavily because you smell everything and you know everything and you sense everything and uh, you know kids like to have a, a confidential place and, and it's important to respect that because it helps them become people yeah, yeah. okay so your ex your ex spouse creates chaos in your life he pulls last minute shtick that, that destroy you Last year, Pesach, you say that three hours before the Seder, he told the children they can't come to your house. In other words, you prepared the house for Pesach, you planned the Seder, you prepared for the Seder, you were supposed to have your children there, and then three hours before Pesach, he basically decides he's not sending you the children, and you're left alone to do the Seder all alone after all the work and toil for the Seder. How are you supposed to deal with this? Wow. The Balshamta's father told him before he died. He knew he's not going to have a father. He was five years old, and his mother died. So he told him two things. First thing he says: Don't fear anything in the world or anybody in the world but God. The second: Love every Jew with all your heart. Think about the first thing: Don't fear anybody in the world but God. Why not? If my ex might take away my kids for Pesach, or might take away my kids, why shouldn't I fear that? If the bank may take away this, and why shouldn't I fear that? And they might. And the Baal and the Baal father's point was that don't give anything in the world power. Nothing in the world has power. There's only one thing that has power, and you have a relationship with that, and come from that space. No letter in the world has power. Nothing, no comment has power. No statement has power. No threat has power. No denigration has power. No insult has power. Nothing has power unless I give it power. If I give it power, then it has a lot, a lot of power. But that's, you know, this is, it's a very easy task, but it's also the hardest task in the world. It's like, if you're there, it's like very easy. If you're not there, it's like, what are you talking about? This person said this, this person said this, I just got a call, I just got an email, I just got a text, he's doing this, he's now doing this. You know what he's up to? It's like, but if you like get it, like you get it, it's not about, it doesn't make him a tzaddik. It's just, it's about where you are, where you are. It's like you're, you're just dveikus with God. That, that's your thing. You're like working with him, for him. So they may call up three hours before and they say, we're not coming. You didn't destroy me. You don't have power to destroy me. 
You may be a real moron. It doesn't mean you're not a moron. <laughs> you may be a self-centered, narcissistic moron, but you just did not destroy me. And, and I think the Baal Shem, the Friedrich Rebbe said that these two things he heard from his father are the two pillars of Hasidus. The two things his father told him, don't fear anybody in the world but Hashem, and love every Jew with all your heart. He says those are the two pillars of Hasidus. That means any time a person is teaching Hasidus, if the message is not one of these two things, so then there's something off, because these are the pillars. Number one, nothing has power on the world over you. Nothing, nobody. It's just you and God. That's what it is. It's you and Hashem. But that's very hard. When the school just called me, my son is expelled. The bank just called me, my house is this. My ex just notified me. What do you mean they don't have power over me? I just lost my job, right? I just have this, I just have that. The cleaning lady is not coming. So what? But the, that's the real point. The point is that none of these things really have any power. They have absolutely no power over me. I am completely intact. I mean, I'm, I'm just, it's what Hashem wants from me right now at this moment. Right now what He wants from me is telling me that these kids are not coming for the Pesach Seder and He wants me to have a Seder with God. Okay. Great Jews have had starring with God. <laughs> the Rebbe for many years did a Seder all alone. From when his wife passed away, he had nobody at a Seder. I'm saying so you're in good company. He had nobody at a Seder. Completely himself. And I'm sure he left Mitzrayim. Yes, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know. I'm just saying you're in good company. Dvori Halberstam, the founder of this museum, invited him because her husband used to work right. in the house and Ari knew him. You know, Ari, Ari who was killed, yeah. So I remember I was there. I remember Chesed went over and Ari and they invited the Rebbe and uh, please come to our house. And he was very, very... Uh, polite and very cordial and it was like you know, thank your mother thank your mother very much but I'll, I'm gonna be <laughs> I'll be here and a lot of people invited him and Rabbi Groner offered to stay at least I mean it's not a family but at least you know he'll be there he'll pour the wine he'll open the door for you know, he'll do this no he didn't let anybody stay he said you have a family go home you, you have a family you know I don't so you go so in many ways it was a Rebbe does something for a generation why did the Rebbe do it? The Rebbe could have gone to somebody, right? Or he could have asked a few people to come, you know, at least his secretary there were people that had them but I think one of the reasons he did it was for a person like yourself or people that are doing the Seder themselves so he created the paradigm for that he created empowerment for that that he did the Seder himself because there are Jews who are lonely so in their loneliness, they should be able to connect to something. Mm-hmm. So understand, that's how I see it. Because I remember I thought about it, it was, it, there was something very tragic about it. Here is a man who has so many students and admirers, but for a Pesach Seder, not one person was there. Not one person. Not one. Every Tom, Spaghetti, and Harry has a Seder with 45 people. You know, your sixth cousin you have a Seder with. You know what I mean? And here, not one person to have a seder with. So technically, there was no family. His wife passed away. You know, there were obviously no children. Um, his nephew was not on the best terms with him, uh, to put it mildly. And uh, I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying from from a, from a, from, a, from a, you know from a, a simple practical point of view. But but what I feel is that this was essentially an empowerment for all the lonely people out there. That there is that, 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 that nobody has power over them. 
they're, they're, they're lonely only if they define themselves as lonely you know everyone is lonely and everyone is not lonely it's, it's, it's what you give it's, it's, so the question is you know when I read a letter about me how much power am I giving it if I'm giving it a lot of power it's destroying me then it really has power and the Baal Shem Tov's father was like there's no power only what you give it the fear is what gives us power but listen <laughs> this is easier said than done you know what I mean it's very easy but now I'm going to get a text and it's going to freak me out there's no power okay but it freaked me out fine it's powerless, it just has the power to freak. Um, um, so, you know, it's really, it, but it's really about, a, we can't always, I'm not going to say we can always be in that space. We can't, it's unrealistic to say that for most people. But at least we can have an awareness that there is such a space and try to align ourselves as much as possible with it. And uh, the, the, the most, the greatest one who will gain from it besides yourself are your children. Because it will teach them how the negativity doesn't have to uh, overpower them. And again, this doesn't mean to be naive. The Baal was not a naive person. It, but it does mean not to get caught up in the thicket of it and not to go down and have equal playing fields. I'm reacting from a much uh, higher place. Finally, I want to tell you that I want you to know that if at any point I can be here for you in any way, for you, your loved ones, your children, please never hesitate to reach out. To the best of my ability, I would always like to help you now or in the future if there's anything I can ever do for any of you or your families. If even just to be an ear that listens, I am always happy and delighted to do it. So feel free to always reach out. You can email me, text me, call me. Uh, if you need any help in any possible way, and Hashem should bless you with bracha and atzlocha, ad bli dai betoiv haniru vanigli, you should have menuchas hanefesh, menuchas haguf, a lot of nachas from yourselves and your children, mitoich simcha v'tuv leivov, la'arichis yomim v'shanim toivis, and may all of us find the strength to be able to bring in tremendous light into our lives, and remember at the end of the day, ultimately we are all ambassadors of love, light, hope, and as shluchim of Hashem, our power is incredible and infinite. Brach of Hatzlach. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.